Welcome to the Prolific Pulse Poetry Podcast on YouTube. This is your host, Lisa Tomey. Today, our guest will be Michael Poge. And believe me, you don't want to miss this. Welcome to the Prolific Pulse Poetry Podcast on YouTube. This is your host, Lisa Tomey. I am really excited today. I have Michael Poge with us. And believe it or not, we're going to welcome him as a podcast virgin because this is his first time to do a podcast. <laughs> Yay! Welcome! <laughs> well, since you broke into podcasting, you'll be doing it all the time. <laughs> so welcome to the show. <laughs> so welcome, Michael, to our podcast. We're really happy to have you here today. Thanks, Lisa. It's, a, it's an honor and um, a new adventure. So. There you go. Now, I understand you have traveled all over, not just the United States, but in other countries as well. Um, you've been a very, very busy man. And I was reading um, in your biography about, you know, you've had some involvement with social justice and um, making an impact in that way. I'd love to hear about that. That's one of my favorite topics. I wonder if you could share with us a little bit about your involvement with social justice causes. Um, sure. It's, um, I think my mother was my first social justice teacher and, um, she didn't really know that, but, uh, <laughs> in many ways, uh, she, she taught me the ways of social justice and, um, and my father was in the Marine Corps, so he wasn't so much into, <laughs> into that. Um, but, you know, throughout my life since since I was 20. Um, and basically it was um, 1967 um, and 1968 that we, with the assassinations of, uh, of Dr. King in uh, April of 68 and then two months later, um, Bobby Kennedy in L.A., and I was in L.A. at that time, actually. Um, I just dropped out of of grad school <laughs> and uh, was still in L.A. And uh, Kennedy was killed. Um, and then the Vietnam War uh, was heating up. Um, and I actually was in seminary. Graduate school was, was seminary. And seminarians at that time were given... We were all given a what's called a 4D classification, which is a divinity school deferment. Mm-hmm. Um, and after reading a lot about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and um, the Confessing Church in uh, Germany during the Third Reich, uh, doing a lot of reading, talking to some professors, um, I decided that the divinity the 4D divinity deferment was um, really was not right. It was not, it was, it was unfair to the rest of my friends who didn't have, you know, that kind of deferment and were getting drafted and going to Vietnam and fighting. Um, so I surrendered the 4D classification um and let my draft board know. And then I began a process of um, 
trying to be classified as a conscientious objector. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wasn't part of a peace church. I wasn't even part of a church, actually. Um, and but I, I gathered all the materials together. You know, I got references and um, did my did my homework, put a portfolio together, um, and then had a two year battle with my draft board, <laughs> which was in San Diego. Um, you know, and the San Diego draft board is that wasn't real open to uh, conscientious objectors either, uh, since it's a highly um, lots of military <laughs> presence there. Um, so eventually I was given, um, because my wife had a baby and, um, in 1970 and we, we were headed for Canada actually. And we got to Montana. We stayed with some friends for a little bit. Um, and I got word that I'd been given a, a, um, hardship deferment yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it was really because there were hundreds hundreds tens <laughs> tens of hundreds of people in my in the same position in the in the courts so um but then um then i went to montana stayed there for 12 years um and i got a, my master of fine arts uh, and creative writing there with Richard Hugo and Madeline DeFries. It's a great writing program. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, but I didn't know anything about it, actually. I was, I was writing poems, but I really wasn't part of a writing community. Mm -hmm. I, was, I, was a, I was and still am really kind of a loner. Um, and to, to cut it a little bit shorter, <laughs> I ended up going back to seminary and not with the idea of becoming a local church pastor, but I wanted to um, go to a, a, I wanted to get my master's of divinity, study theology and study what I really loved was, was studying the languages, um, Aramaic and Hebrew and Greek. Um, I loved that part of it. Um, and then I loved the social justice part of it. And I worked in Oakland, California, um, at a downtown church for a year. Uh, it was a kind of internship, although it wasn't a paid internship. Uh, but I, I worked with uh, the mayor of the city council. Um, it was a wonderful opportunity with the school district. Um, and Oakland at that point, at that time, was very, very um, uh, dangerous, actually. Um, gangs and so forth, and lots of violence, lots of gang shootings, lots of uh, all kinds of violence. Um, and I ended up working with uh, a junior high school with, that was the, the uh, second English as second language uh, junior high school for the city of Oakland, and we shared a parking lot with with the school and the church. So you know, when they came out for lunch, uh, I would go over and just you know talk to the students right. um, and they were from all all all, all, you know, all over the world um, and then uh, then I ended up uh, I wanted to go to graduate school 
in a non-Western university. So I really wanted to go to the University of Durban in South Africa, a place I'd never been before. I'd never really, I'd never been out of the country. And I wanted, I wanted a non-Western approach to mm -hmm. theology as well as liberation theology. Right. That whole, um, that whole realm, you know, that whole world. Um, but I needed a scholarship to do that <laughs> uh, from the seminary that I was attending. I, I was told I, I, by the committee members uh, secretly that I, I was a shoe-in. Uh, I had the highest GPA. Uh, anyway, I didn't get it. <laughs> so um, I ended up needing to get a job and uh, ended up in the middle of, of the United States in Kansas. And I served three churches, three United Church of Christ churches here in Kansas. Um, so the whole, for 25 years, I served here. And people said, why did you go to Kansas? And I said, um, Kansas is a great place to be subversive because people don't pay that much attention to what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> um, unless it's gossipy kind of stuff. That, that's different. <laughs> so I started, I, I became the director of um, our uh, Peace and Justice Task Force here in Kansas for Kansas and Oklahoma. That was our region. And we started working on all kinds of uh, justice issues from uh, even it's basic education about uh, Soweto and South Africa, um, because the, the churches in Kansas, for the most part, didn't know much about the rest of the world. It's kind of like our citizenry. <laughs> I mean, you know, our population in the United States doesn't know much about the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, what I've found is the rest of the world knows a whole lot more about the United States and politics of the U.S. and literature of the U.S., especially mu music and films of the U.S., because they, they learn English that way. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we started working on issues of racism, um, even out here on the plains, um, issues of uh, uh, the recession. There was, there was a major recession going on in 1985 when I first started working in a church here in Kansas. 40% um, of the land in, in our county was um, uh, under, uh, was, was about to go under basically, owned by the banks, um, foreclosure, you know, and uh, so we worked, we tried to get the church involved in, in those kinds of issues, in, in the racism, in the agricultural um, uh, economy, basically, an agribusiness versus um, the smaller farms, um, uh, LGBTQ issues, uh, we, we were working on that. Um, and then I became, in addition to the director of, of the Peace and Justice Task Force, I became director of the youth, <laughs> the youth 
of Kansas and Oklahoma. And it was a perfect mix. Um, and I got uh, myself, I'm not taking, I won't take all the credit. I, I, there were other people with me who got these kids excited about uh, social justice issues. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, if you want somebody to speak out, get some youth, get some 15, 16, 17 year old yeah. students. And uh, one quick example of that, we had a national youth event, 2000 kids in Columbia, South Carolina, which at that time had the Confederate flag flying from the state capitol as well as the U.S. flag. And there was a movement by the uh, NAACP to get that removed. Right. Well, we wrote up a resolution, um, we being the youth of Kansas and Oklahoma, and presented it to the, the, the plenary, <laughs> the, 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 comp, the, the, the whole group, 2,000 of them. And uh, that became one of our, that was adopted as one of our resolutions. Um, so, you know, the, the youth kind of fed me and I kind of fed them. We, we worked together on these things. Um, and we had, <laughs> at, this, at this same meeting, we had a press conference. Uh, now, I was arranging all this stuff on kind of on the side uh, because I wanted the youth to, to really uh, take uh, responsibility for it. Right. And uh, I didn't want it to be fake responsibility. Mm -hmm. So our the, the youth leader of our um, contingent, <laughs> uh, he got to be the spokesperson at this press conference, <laughs> and he and I had a talk. And before then, and I kind of told him what it might be like. And we were under a, a big uh, a big tent that, that huge tent held about a thousand people and um uh, and he got up on this and on the stage we had a little stage there and he got up and spoke in in front of he was actually from oklahoma the number of people under that tent were um the the number was more than the town he was from <laughs> the population of his hometown in oklahoma um so we worked on you know, issues of the Confederate flag, and this was back in 1996. Um, and, and so that's, you know, that's how we kind of, and, and then internet, I started internationally in 2000, and I started going to Bosnia. Um, Bosnia and Herzegovina is the full name. Um, and I, I was just drawn to the country. I, I have, I really don't know why. I have a couple of theories, <laughs> but um, it was a country that went through a, a horrible series of wars, really, in, in the early 1990s. Right. Uh, and I followed the, I followed the wars closely. And I, in July of 2000. Uh, my wife and I were in Latvia at the time, teaching, and I decided I was going to go to Bosnia, and I got a ticket and I went uh, just by myself, and I didn't know anybody there in Sarajevo, 
that was my destination. <laughs> and uh, but I quickly met a couple of people and um, from NG different NGOs in the city and in the country. And then I just started, it, it was just a, a, a wonderful merger yeah, of my, my desire to be present. Right. It's what I call, what I call a, um, a critical presence, mm -hmm. uh, not in terms of judgmentalism, or right. judging, but uh, but important, an important presence. Mm -hmm. And um, then I just started working with different agencies, uh, volunteering, um, orchard restoration, uh, fruit and uh, rakia. Rakia is the, uh, <laughs> it's the drink of Bosnia and Herzegovina. 80, it's 80 proof, <laughs> but it, it's a really powerful brandy actually. And uh, so the country, the country's economy relies on, uh, on the orchards, the fruit mm -hmm. orchards. So, and a lot of them were torn up and destroyed during the wars. So right. everything from that to uh, teaching English, to working with imams in the Srebrenica area, uh, which was a place where 8,000 Muslim men and boys were massacred in, um, in July of 95. Um, and then their graves, um, there were primary graves and then the Serbs came in and dug those graves up and there were secondary graves and it just de desecrating the, the burials, desecrating the, um, what was left of the bodies, and then tertiary graves to really uh, make it almost impossible to for family members to identify their dead relatives. Um, so I just kept going back to Bosnia, and I've been there 10 times now since 2000. Um, the last three years has been to teach. Um, uh, and and we taught at a Muslim university in Mostar, which is in the Herzegovina or southern part of Bosnia. Uh, I have a, after I retired, I went to university. I got my graduate certificate in teaching English as a second language. Okay. So I started um, a new career. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... Um, my but my youngest daughter says, "Dad, you didn't retire; you refired." <laughs> <laughs> well, that's so, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's okay to to have. I've reinvented myself a few times in my life as well. Yeah, yeah right. Yes, I. Yeah, me too. I mean, the career of twenty five years in one place is very unusual for uh, for me. <laughs> well, underlying um, all of this experience that you've had. You wrote several, how many books of poetry has it been now? 13. 13. Mm -hmm. um, in those books of poetry, have you recorded your experiences of life some, in your some. poetry? Yes, some. Um, some, especially of Bosnia. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and 
Well, and Mexico, because I, I started in 1995, taking uh, youth and adults to Tijuana, to the Tijuana area of, uh -huh. of uh, uh, Mexico and northern Mexico. And we um, worked in the colonias, the, very, the, po the poorest colonias on the outskirts of, of Tijuana. Um, so I've written some about that. Um, and uh, I don't know if you have heard of Luis uh, Alberto Arrea, but uh, he's a he's a great writer, poet, prose. Uh, and he's from Tijuana, actually. Um, and that's a meeting point for for the two of us. Uh, <laughs> and he's he's written two really good books um, that are. Um, nonfiction prose mm -hmm. about the colonias and about Tijuana and that area. Okay. Uh, one's called Across the Wire, and the other is called By the Lake of Sleeping Children. Um, and it, it's um, it's really they're really interesting. So, yeah. but anyway, so you know, I've I've been Mexico. Uh, Gaza. I, I spent some time in Gaza, uh, the Gaza Strip, and Palestine, um, West Bank, and um, some other places, <laughs> <laughs> Kosovo, uh, as well as Bosnia and Herzegovina. Um, <laughs> yeah. So my my heart, though, you know, Bosnia and Herzegovina is shaped like the human heart, um, <laughs> only. Uh, like a fist, only not a clenched fist, but mm -hmm. a slightly open fist. Mm -hmm. uh, and whenever I, I do a presentation on Bosnia, I always point that out. Right. <laughs> most people don't know anything about Bosnia or know where it is even. A lot mm -hmm. of people, in, it's in Africa or it's in, in an island off of Norway or something. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's actually at the heart of Europe. Mm -hmm. Really important, but yes, some of my writing, um, I have brought in some of those experiences. Yes. Wonderful. Now, this um, I'm going to share my screen. But I'll talk about it as well for podcasters to know. Okay. Um, you have a website, michaelpoge.com, and I'll include that in the show notes. Thank and you. You have your latest poetry book called You Must Have Your Famine. Came out in just right. January this year. Wow, right. congratulations. Thank so you. Tell us much. about this book. Well, what's this about? Um, this book, yeah, it's interesting when people ask me what 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 one of my books is about. Uh, I, usually there's no single theme. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I get um, that. I, you know, I, <laughs> Well, yeah, I don't arrange the poems um, chronologically or thematically, usually. Um, I, I do that, I, I put um, similar poems in the same chapters sometimes, uh -huh. um, or the same parts, chapters. Um, for instance, in You Must Have Your Famine, um, there's um, 
part two is called Scottish Prayer Book. Which my wife and I have spent quite a bit of time in Scotland on the on the north, the mm -hmm. north coast of Scotland, um, right on the, the little town called Portsoy, and it's in between the Highlands on the west and Aberdeen on the east. It's right in the middle. It's wonderful. But but so I put you know, all of these poems and part two, Scottish Prayer Book are related to, to Scotland and our Scotland experience. Um, and other than that, um, I'm just looking at <laughs> the poems. Um, I do, I, I'm gonna take part of what I said back. I, when I look at the poems, um, I, I, I like to arrange them so that, um, they kind of know each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, sure that the, the poems are familiar with each other, which might sound a little weird. Yeah. Um, no, good. <laughs> um, when it, I know I don't remember my poems, so whenever I open a book, like, even the latest one, I think, oh, I wrote that. <laughs> because <laughs> I do that. <laughs> do yeah. Okay. Well, I I see them as as friends, mm -hmm. you know, and. And I see them as friends of each other, and right. also as a kind of community, um, uh, which has been my whole my whole life has been um, working on what Martin Luther King called the beloved community. Mm -hmm. um, I I I believe that each of the books is a community, a community of poems. I like that. I like that analogy. You know. It's like you open it up and you're opening up to that community of your, your world. This is that section of the community that you want to talk about. What inspired the title of the book? Yeah, you know, I've had a lot of questions about that. Um, the, the title of the book is actually a title of one of the poems in the book. Okay. And to be honest, I just, I was just intrigued with the title and I don't even I don't know where it came from. Um, I, probably some time when I was sitting here at my desk um, with my uh, writer's notebook, <laughs> or with my it's actually a, a Walgreens notebook, <laughs> best kind <laughs> from the drugstore, and yeah, and somehow those words came together. Um, and then a poem uh, out of that as well. Um, as I thought about it, though, too, um, there's a there's a part of, to me at least, when I think about my life, um, and and I've seen quite a bit of uh, both tragedy and joy um, from different national perspectives, different linguistic perspectives. Um, I mean, the, the language in different countries is um, incredible to study. And uh, and I'm really poor at learning languages, but I love the study of them. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, you know, th there's a part of me that believes that capitalism thrives on famines and that, I mean, real 
I'm talking about real world famines because we make money on it. Uh, the, the, the most, the, the real capitalist countries of which the United States is prime example, I think feeds off of the famines politically, economically. Um, and so part of me says and believes and thinks that the my my country, which I've thought about leaving, <laughs> but my I mean permanently, but my country feeds off of a famine. So it says to the world, you you must have your famine, or I won't survive, or I won't have the kind of life I'm used to living. If you don't have your famine, if you don't, if Darfur, which is now kicking up again, um, with with violence and uh, revolution, um, then we we won't be able to sell you guns. That that's which is a primary um, primary job for the U.S. around the world is to arm the world. So um, if you have a famine, you know chances are then there'll be a revolution. Chances are then you're going to need weapons, um, and we can work out a deal. You know with weapons we can send you some food, but it's going to cost you. Um, and you know we just we. We can't spare that much, but we can spare a little bit just to keep enough to keep you alive. So um, it's, it's some of it, it, you know, part of it is a kind of a bitter, there's a bitter taste in the in the title. Um, to me, part of it is also very real, um, capturing a very real uh, process in our between the capitalist countries, the wealthy countries, and the vast number of um, what we what we call developing countries, right. uh, you know. But, but you know that they're developing because they depend on Western money. <laughs> uh, it just you know that's yeah. that's my thinking at least after fifty mm -hmm. some odd years of, of working. <laughs> um, well, and famine, you know, that one word can take on so many. That's that one word is a poetry book of books. But yeah. What exactly. one word to inspire many poems and yes. many pieces and of any essays. Be, yeah. And you can have emotional famine also, mm -hmm. which uh, I think we rely on as well. I mean, uh, and and then you can also get more personal if you if you look at it in an emotional way, you know, mm -hmm. um, then the poems can be uh, and are more personal um, and talk about more intimate, uh, more intimate details or events or circumstances, uh, whether it's mine or somebody else's. Right. A lot of people also ask, they, they'll, a lot of my poems are dark. Um, I don't know why folks are concerned about that. <laughs> <laughs> that seems it seems to be almost be a criticism uh, huh. from, from people. Um, There's room for and, darkness in poetry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's um, it's a way to get um, 
that darkness into into understanding, being understood, I guess is a better way to put it, being understood. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that's, uh, and then my publisher and editor and layout person <laughs> um, put the, the piece of fabric on the cover. Mm -hmm. um, and at first I didn't like it. And then um, one night when I was trying to fall asleep, I thought, you know, that's a, that is a, actually a great cover for that book uh, in terms of you must have your famine. Mm -hmm. um, if, if, you, if you look at Yemen, you look at the, pe the clothes people are wearing uh, or Myanmar, um, it, almost anywhere. I mean, uh, it, just, it just fit both the emotional and the, um, uh, the, real, the, the, the realism of you must have your family. Right. Now, do you have some poetry to share today? Yes. Um, Sarah sent me a, an email saying that she sent you three poems. She did. Okay. You mind if I read those? Yes, I go have... right ahead. Absolutely. <laughs> I was hoping you would. Okay. All right. The first one that, that I'll read is called The Spider. And it's one of those that's, uh, it's a it's a pretty personal one. It's, so um, here goes. The Spider. You make it sound so easy. Then you change your mind and bring the argument into focus from a different angle. You don't notice the black spider walking along the edge of your coffee cup. The discussion continues mostly on the literary merits of a full stop but you forget about the war around us, the anger and fear striking like lightning ourselves and our neighbors. The world knows nothing, cares less. You could put your hands gently on the side of my face only for the sake of affection. The spider is oblivious, spins a web across your cup. Wow, that says so much. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, yeah. <laughs> this is one of the poems that when I stumbled across it um, after the book was published, I thought, I wrote that? <laughs> <laughs> When did I write that? I don't remember. Um, <laughs> and up there, the, the second poem is called Tiger, Tiger. <laughs> what is intimate to you is only what gets caught in your teeth. It takes practice to do what you do with such skill. 
the play with siblings in childhood, faking a throat grab, then a sharp snap at the rump is only a prelude to the love of the kill that will come sooner than I ever imagined. You're down on your stomach in the brown grass with more patience than you can keep hidden. You move toward your prey before your instinct would allow you so you know it's a mistake from the start. I see what you are doing, so I lunge out of the reach of your lecherous, poor excuse for claws, attack, and you tumble away, out of view, over the steep cliff, dropping out the window on the 20th floor, and land on the pavement, the sweet savanna, twisted and contorted in more erotic ways than you can picture on the pavement, the sweet savanna. Ooh, another powerful one. Thank you. This is this is one of the poem, a poem when I've had I've had good friends uh, who have read my poems say, um, you know, um, I, I read your poems, I don't understand them, but I'm glad you're writing them. <laughs> <laughs> um, another poem, the third one here, called Lies I've Heard or Told. To give you a kind of um, heads up here, this is basically a list of lies I've heard or told. I love you. I hate you. We are now in Iraq. There are WMDs in Iraq, so we must invade. No, there isn't someone else. Yes, you get the children as often as I do. We've landed on the moon. Algebra is easy. I was at the library studying. You're making this into something it's not. You have beautiful legs. I don't miss my dead parents. You look 20 years younger than that. You look 10 years younger than him. You look great. The bottled water is better for you than tap. I feel great. Every joint in my body hurts. Yes. You get the children as often as I do. Trust me. Hmm. I read that earlier um, 
and I read it a couple of times, you know, to, to really get a good grasp on that. And I thought, you know, there are so many truths in that poem, you know, yeah. uh, I, lies I, I, we tell and lies we tell ourselves too. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I literally, I just sat down and this, this, this was a quick poem to write. Um, although I didn't put a title on it, I don't think for a while. Um, I just had the idea of lies, lies and um, lies and maybe truths, but mostly lies. <laughs> <laughs> so those are those are the three Thank poems you. that, that you Thank were saying. Yes. Appreciate you sharing those. Well, Michael, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to share? Um, I really just deeply appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. <laughs> it's, I'm really glad you're doing this. Well, I'm glad you're here. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, art is so important in so many other countries. Mm -hmm. um, and they in, in so many other countries, they have statues to painters. Of, of painters in, in parks uh, or poets in parks or at a, at a street intersection, you know, there's a statue of a, of a writer. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't do much of that. We, we, we salute our generals. And mm -hmm. I would just hope that um, this idea of the beloved community mm -hmm. would, um, would somehow catch on. Yeah. Too. And uh, more so now than ever. Yeah. Well, one of the things that um, I do is um, just kind of fell into it. Is I don't know if it's serendipity or what, but I met a young um, poet. She's 13 now um, from Nigeria. Uh -huh. And I have been mentoring her and editing her work and doing some work with her father. He, both of them are writers. Oh, great. Um, and my, my, I was introduced to them by a friend who has also been doing work with them. Mm -hmm. And what I have come from that with um, is an awareness of what is really precious. I mean, I, I thought I had a pretty good idea what was precious in life. But mm -hmm. when you hear things from the point of view from someone who's in a country where it's a lot different, and what we're used to here. I mean, we're pretty spoiled. Yes. And, you know, it has been probably just as enriching to me being her mentor and an editor as it is, you know, maybe for her to get to benefit from that. But, you know, it's it's just taught me some things, a, a, a different kind of appreciation. And so I think that we have to sometimes step out of our comfort zone um, yes. Cross some borders, um, <laughs> get in touch more and more with with other people. Absolutely, um, yeah. yeah. That's great. I'm glad you're doing that. It must be really fun too. It is. It is. And I'm an editor for one of um, for Fine Lines, and um, I help them get you know some of their work in there. So, mm -hmm. you know, it just feels good when I see their name in print. You know, so yeah. you know, and you know, I'm. I'm I teach English, so I got a, a Fulbright 
um, for this year and next year, teaching English um, right now virtually. Um, but I was I was so happy again at 75 to get a Fulbright <laughs> um, to teach, and uh, <laughs> and they uh, they needed somebody with a literature background in Thailand. I didn't even think about Thailand, you know. Um, but I, right now I am teaching virtually at a university in southern Thailand. Well, great. Teaching English literature and language, and it is um, it it, it um, what you said about learning from um, from your student. You're getting more out of uh, the experience than you're giving. Uh, I, that's what I feel is that mm -hmm. in teaching these their kids, their university students, <laughs> uh, in teaching them, I learn much more than I teach. I mean. Uh, every every night. I mean, I, because of the time difference, uh, I have classes from 10 here, from 10 p.m. until midnight, sometimes 10 till 1 a.m. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's a, <laughs> I start to get a little wacky after a while, but, uh, <laughs> but they enjoy that and they can make fun of me. Um, <laughs> and this is the first time they have ever done a virtual classroom. So it's it's been really really interesting, and uh, I might have a chance to go there and teach in country, which would be really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, good luck to you. That sounds great. Well, thank, thank you so much, Michael, for coming on here today. Thank you for the invitation. That really wish lots great. of safety and beautiful words for you in the future. Thank you very much. Take care. <laughs> All right. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. Come back again soon. Would you like to be on our podcast? Send an email to prolificpulse at gmail.com and we'll get back to you soon. Thank you. Have a good day.